And we're going to continue worshiping this morning by studying the Word of God together and continuing our look through Colossians. And that song that Becky just sang is a beautiful transition. It's a beautiful reminder that in all circumstances, we can give praise and glory and honor to God. And so our third week into this study, our message is entitled, A Christian Perspective on Suffering. If you followed along with us the last couple of weeks, thus far in the book of Colossians, uh, it has started off with, with Paul writing to the Colossians the advantages and benefits of the gospel. What is it that we receive when we receive Christ? What are some tangible things that we can understand? Then last week we looked in uh, chapter 1 again as Paul continued to talk about the gospel. He reminded us that Christ is above all things. He is infinitely above all things and he also personally comes and has a relationship with us and now this morning we're going to be looking in colossians chapter 1 verses 24 through chapter 2 verse 3 paul is going to transition into a time of talking about his suffering I like to think of myself as a hipster preacher. I don't know if you knew that or not. I don't have the skinny jeans and I don't have the tight-fitting shirt. But if a hipster is doing something before it was cool, that means I must be the most hipster preacher of 2020 because I've been using hand sanitizer long before any of you were using hand sanitizer. Actually, this one was a gift. I used it so much that uh, Jim Riggs graciously gave me some Kemper CPA Group hand sanitizer well before the pandemic ever hit. And uh, I'm still nursing this bottle, Jim. I want you to know that. And so uh, none of us were ready for a pandemic. I tease all the time that, that I missed the seminary class that dealt with how to pastor through a pandemic. I must have been sleeping in that morning and didn't make it to that class. I, I don't think any of us knew how to prepare our businesses for shutdowns. None of us knew how to prepare for a health crisis. No one was ready for what it will look like when our kids go back to school. We didn't understand how to do any of this. And 2020, of all years, has been the toughest year of most people's lives. Now, I know there are some specific instances of loss or grief that maybe have been harder for you personally, but as far as our world as a whole, I, I'm thinking that in my lifetime for sure, this has been the most difficult. Maybe those who are a little older and had to, to deal with uh, being alive during the Vietnam War or even older than that, some, some times of world crises, Certainly those were, were stressful and difficult, but for someone my age and younger, I have a hard time thinking of a calendar year that had more challenges worldwide than 2020. We've seen pain and suffering on a global scale. We've seen illnesses. We've seen job loss. We've seen financial crashes and bounce backs and crashes and bounce backs. We've seen political turmoil. We've seen social turmoil and unrest. I don't think any of us were prepared for 2020. But as I think about that statement, I, I have to ask myself, why weren't we? This isn't something that we were not warned about. Do you realize that all throughout the Old and New Testament, specifically as Jesus is teaching in the Gospels, he says, get ready, things will be bad. 
There will be natural disasters. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be brother turning against brother, households split. There will be pain and suffering. Be ready for it. And yet I find myself going, I'm not ready. (laughs) I wasn't ready. So I, I think there's a lot to learn all throughout the New Testament about being prepared for suffering. I don't necessarily want to focus on that, but instead I want to focus on on what happens when we're not ready. I I think this morning what has happened to our churches, our cultures, and even a lot of Christian individuals, because we were not prepared for 2020 and the, the year that has been, we have turned to questioning, God, how would you let this happen? I had a great discussion this morning in our small group class, and we asked the question, how do we tell what God is doing and what Satan is doing? By the way, I don't have time to go in. That's a sermon, Tom, that we need to explore sometime. That's a really good question. It's really difficult to figure out how is God stirring the waters and and how is he allowing Satan to to stir the waters? Is is this punishment? Is this brokenness? Is this a work of God? Is it a work of the evil one? And, And it's really difficult, but it leaves us questioning then, God, why do you let this happen? Is it is it good? And so this morning, I want to help answer that question a little bit. I want to look at Paul's perspective on his own suffering. And so this morning's message is entitled, A Christian Perspective on Suffering. How are you and I supposed to deal with 2020? How are we supposed to deal with tragic loss in our life, given whatever year it may be? How are we supposed to deal with brokenness that surrounds us? And when we feel like all is chaos and hopeless, what perspective should we take? So we're going to read together Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 24. We're going to dip all the way into chapter 2, verse 3. You can follow along on the screen or in your own copy of God's Word if you would like. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want to know how I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom, all are, hid, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As we read Colossians, Paul's emphasis at the beginning is the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Christ is better. Christ is great. Christ is powerful. Christ is over all. 
The benefits of the gospel are great. He wants to pull you into a relationship with him. Know Christ. And his readers must have been reading this thinking, you don't know what we're going through. Paul, don't you understand what you're going through? This church in Colossae was, was not able to see, Christ, or, or see Paul physically. He was not able to visit them. And they mourned and they wept because they were hurting. They were being pulled in opposite directions. There were those who were extremely legalistic. right? You have to follow these rules. There were some who were extremely licentious. You don't have to follow any rules. They're being pushed and pulled in every direction. They need a word from Paul and he's not there. And they're struggling and they're suffering and they're hurting. And as Paul says, Christ is over all, I imagine some of them say, well, then where is he? Why isn't he here? How come we can't see him and touch him and feel him? There's all this turmoil going on in our church and in our community and in our culture, and we don't understand what's happening. How is it that you say that this suffering, in the midst of this suffering, God is a good God? I want you to recognize that Paul does not downplay the suffering that he and the church in Colossae are going through. That's why he writes in chapter 2, verse 1, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. I want you to know that the struggle is real. I'm going to go ahead and let you know that if you ever listen to a TV evangelist preacher or any Christian leader of any kind that tells you if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you won't struggle or suffer and your life will be good and it will be better and he will bless you and make you rich and your worries will go away. That is a lie. Paul looks and he says, I want you to know how great a struggle that I have for you and for myself. I want you to know the Christian life is not absence of pain and struggling and hardship. There is struggle and the struggle is real and the struggle is present Paul says, I have it for myself, I have it for you, and all those in Laodicea, everyone who can't see me face to face and and hear a word from God, I understand your pain. And this morning, can we just start off by saying, as we look around, those present here and those watching, God understands that the pain is real. It's It's not something that he glosses over. It's not something that he says, have a little faith and wipe your eyes, you'll be fine. God does not look at his people and say, get over it. You have me. It's okay. He says, no, I want you to know that I'm here in the midst of the struggle and I understand. The Christian life is one that that inevitably will endure pain and endure suffering. The Christian life is one that we have to recognize is not absent from suffering. And how is it that we're supposed to approach then our suffering? Well, there's two main thoughts I want to share with you this morning, and and I think Paul brings them out clearly in this passage. And so if you take notes, I want you to write these two things down. The first one to write down is this, rejoice in suffering. This is so preacher cliche that you probably are tempted not to write it down or take note of it. Rejoice in suffering. That's what every preacher says. Be happy because you're miserable. Can I tell you a secret for just a second? I've never been happy when I'm miserable. I've never been glad because things are not going my way. And I've never put a smile on my face in the midst of the suffering because that's what God tells me to do. I'm going to tell you the word rejoice and the word happy are not the same. The word joy and the word happy are not the same. Paul does not say be happy because you're suffering. 
And he says, I know the suffering is real, it's painful, and it's hard. I know you're crying and you're weeping. I know that you're hurting, and that's okay. You don't have to be happy, but there is a, a sense of joy and rejoicing that we have in Christ. He starts off this particular passage in verse 24 with this exact phrase. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. The whole passage we read is really going to be our second point. This first phrase, I don't want to gloss over. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. First of all, he says, I rejoice. And we talked a little bit about how joy and happiness are two different things. Sometimes they link up. The day, all three days that my children were born, there was great happiness and great rejoicing. I was so thankful for the good gift that God had given me. And so each one of those days, I was grinning from ear to ear. I think the nurses probably still laugh at me as a dad. I don't know. They've probably seen everything. Hannah still makes fun of me when Josiah was born. They got him kind of cleaned up just a little bit. He still had to go get his official cleanup bath, and they set him aside under a, a lamp or something to keep him warm, and they're dealing with Hannah and trying to get her situated. And, and I'm standing over there, and here's my cold, naked son all by himself. And so I just, I know you guys are dealing with Hannah, but can I pick him up? Is that okay if I grab him? And the nurse kind of looked at me funny like, your wife's still in pain, and we're still doing some stuff over here, but I'm, I don't care. It's my boy, you know? And so hey, I wrapped him up, and I got to hold him. Well, okay, you guys do your thing. I've got, you know, my son. It's, it was an exciting time, right? There was great happiness, grinning from ear to ear, rejoicing. God, you're so good. Sometimes happiness and joy line up like that, and sometimes they don't. My wife led in difficult times. I'll be honest with you. I wish I could say I was a strong husband and I led, but my wife's faith led in some of our most difficult times. All three births of my children were a happy and rejoiceful time. But we've had two instances where we've lost babies. And they were not happy times. They were tears and pain and suffering. And I praise God that the faithfulness of my wife said, but we can praise God for what he's doing in this. We will rejoice that God is good even in the midst of sorrow. We'll be thankful that God is in control even in the midst of pain. So often, our happiness and our joy don't line up. Paul does not say, I am happy for my sufferings. He says, I rejoice. I know God is in control, and I know He's doing a work. By the way, the whole second thought of this morning's message is going to be on the work that God is doing. But for now, can we put a pin in there and say, we understand that God is good even when things don't seem good. Notice that he doesn't say, I rejoice because or, or in spite of my sufferings. I rejoice even though the world is crashing around me. No, his exact phrase is, I rejoice in my sufferings. I think you can properly write that. I rejoice because of my sufferings. It's the suffering that causes me to praise God and react in joy. This is a really, really tough pill to swallow, quite honestly. That God gives us suffering for the purpose of causing us to turn to Him and rejoice. Paul specifically says, I rejoice in my sufferings because of my sufferings, not just in spite of, but I'm thankful that God has given me the suffering. 
I am so blessed that God has caused me this affliction that I cannot help but say, God, you're a good God and I rejoice. That was not my first reaction and is not my first reaction when things are going south. My first reaction is always inward. It's not to rejoice, it's to have self-pity. God, why would you do this? And where are you? Why don't you intervene and why don't you work? What I'm basically saying when I ask these questions is, God, you don't know what you're doing, but I do. You sent me a suffering, and it's pointless. It's meaningless, and it's just hurtful. It's us saying, God, I know that you're in control, and this is a bad thing, so you must be bad. No. Paul says, I rejoice because of my sufferings, knowing that God is good, and therefore, if God has given me anything, God has given me a good thing. Therefore, my sufferings must be a good thing because God is a good God. My pain must be purposeful and have meaning because God has purpose and meaning in everything he does. I will step back and say, Lord, I don't know what you're doing because I am a faulty and frail human being. But you are good, and therefore my suffering must be good. I will rejoice because of my suffering. I realize you're not there yet. Let us get to our second thought here in a moment. But it's important for us to see what Paul is starting off by saying. We must rejoice because of, or in the midst of our suffering. And his transition to the rest of this passage is those last three words. I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. Not all of our suffering is for other people, but I believe a a great deal of our suffering is for the benefit of others. Paul is reminding us that he is willing to suffer and be in pain if it brings the church of Colossae closer to Christ. I will suffer and I will take on affliction and pain if it will bring you into a stronger relationship. You ever thought for just a moment, when you're asking God, why are you doing this to me, that maybe God is not doing it for you? Maybe God is is bringing the suffering and affliction and pain for somebody else? Maybe it's your experience of suffering that will be a testimony to lead someone else to Christ. Maybe they will look to you and say, they're rejoicing when they shouldn't be rejoicing. Maybe they'll look at you and say, I'm going through the same thing and I'm reacting wildly differently. What do you have that causes you to rejoice? Maybe your suffering is not meant for your sake, but for someone else's sake. And that's what Paul says. I can rejoice even in the midst of my pain and my sorrow and my suffering and my affliction because if that brings you closer to Christ, then everything is worth it. So Paul begins this whole passage by saying, Rejoice in your sufferings. Just as I rejoice in my sufferings, you too can rejoice in your sufferings. Now I realize we've laid this all out. And I've not told you why you should rejoice. I think it's important for us to start here because this is the first command in this passage. The first command is not endure. The first command is not persevere. The first command is not even pray or read The first command in this passage is rejoice. And so we have to focus on the rejoice. But Paul doesn't stop there. He tells us why. So the second thing I want you to write down after you have written rejoice in suffering 
is I want you to write down, remember the goal. Remember the goal. This has been my mantra in a politically charged few years, but particularly this year. Remember the goal. Remember why you live your life and why you act the way you act. Remember what you're called to do and what you're supposed to be doing. And so Paul begins this section by saying, rejoice in my, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And then he continues to explain why he can rejoice. In my flesh, he says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Paul says, my sufferings, listen to his exact wording. I'm going to read this so you don't accuse me of heresy here. He says, my sufferings in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Paul says, my sufferings somehow fill up whatever is lacking in Christ's sufferings. Now, before you get all confused, because I get confused reading this, what Paul is not saying is that Christ's suffering, his death, his afflictions are somehow lacking for our salvation. They are not. As a matter of fact, that idea completely counteracts what we read last week, that Christ is above all, that no one else can do what he has done. It's Christ in Christ alone. That idea goes against the entire teaching of the New Testament that doesn't say you have to work for your salvation. It says Christ worked enough. Everything he has done is enough for you. So what does Paul mean when he says, in my suffering, I am, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Here's what I think he's, he's saying. That Christ cannot physically, or not cannot, is not physically present to every person on the face of the earth. Oh, he's available. He is, he is open to salvation. Anyone can receive him. But he has not gone around in his suffering to every person to share the message of repentance. Well, that's lacking. That still is work that needs to be done. And what Paul is saying is that in my suffering, I get to be where Christ is not. In my suffering, people get to see the suffering of Christ through me. In my pain, people are able to relate to the pain of Christ. What is lacking is not the, the content of salvation. What is lacking is the spread and the share of that message of salvation. And Paul says, my sufferings are the vehicle by which the gospel goes out. I can do anything, suffer, Rejoice, live well, live poorly. I can have plenty or be in want. In Philippians, Paul says, I can do all things. Why? For the sake of the goal of promoting the gospel message. Paul says, Christ is not physically present to suffer with every person on the planet, but I am. And in some way, my suffering will lead others to Christ. It fills up what has been lacking in the kingdom of Christ. The, the very next verse, he says, I'm a minister of that gospel according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. There it is, laying it out clearly. The goal, Paul says, the purpose of the suffering and everything else he does in life is to fill up what is lacking. And what is lacking? The proclamation of making the word of God fully known. We're reminded that our suffering has purpose. 
Everything that we go through in this life, whether it be on a mountaintop or in a valley, has the goal and the purpose to praise God and give Him the glory. Therefore, our suffering in the midst of it, we have two options. We can, one, wallow in self-pity. God, why would you let this happen? And push people away. Or we can remember the goal is to bring people to Christ and say, Lord, I don't know how you're going to use this, but thank you. Thank you for doing something in my life that's going to bring people to you. I want to give you glory whether I'm in a, a valley or on a mountaintop. I want to give you glory whether it's in the midst of a pandemic or in the midst of global peace and unrest. Lord, I want to give you praise and glory and honor in all things because I have the privilege. You use me to fill up what is lacking in proclaiming the message. I, God, get to be your instrument and your tool. Do you see why Paul can say, now I rejoice. My suffering and my pain is not, not meaningless. It's not worthless. And it's because of the pain that I now have a testimony to share and to continue on. In Colossians 1.26, the next verse, he says, This is a mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. It's like Paul says, don't you understand that for the entirety of the Old Testament, I catch this, for the entirety of the Old Testament, people were not able to understand who the Messiah was. It was hidden from them. They longed for it in hope, and they had no clue. But you get to be the instrument to reveal that mystery to a lost world. It's revealed to all the saints, that is, the believers in Christ, who now, through their suffering, through their pain and through their faithfulness in the midst of pain, their rejoicing in the pain, get to point people to the cross of Christ. That, that is why we rejoice in our suffering, because we have not forgotten what the goal of everything is is John Piper has a great quote he says the martyrs of 30 years from now are made today in services like this on days like today it seems so far away but it's not it's just as far away as a commitment that first phrase the martyrs of 30 years from now are made today it, it makes me think of our study we're doing on Wednesday nights looking at the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples. As we're studying them, we realize that, that of the 11 faithful disciples, taking Judas out of the equation, all but one of them, tradition says, were killed and martyred for their faith. I don't think a single one of them lived their life thinking, I, I think I'd, I'd like to die for what I'm doing. But commitment by commitment, faithfulness by faithfulness, Suffering by suffering, they found themselves with a choice to stand for Christ or to deny Him. And tradition tells us all but one stood to the point of death. Our suffering is not pointless. The commitments we make today impact how we are faithful tomorrow. Are we willing to say, God, I trust you in the midst of suffering. I trust you in the midst of sorrow and anguish. And Lord, today I make the commitment to say you are good in all circumstances and in all things so that maybe 30 years from now you'll find me faithful. This morning, I wonder if we can look at the suffering that we're enduring and, and ask ourselves, can we be faithful today? Can we rejoice today? Can we remember our purpose today? One day, one commitment, one step at a time. God, can you make me rejoice 
in my suffering. Let's pray together. Father, we're reminded that you are good in all things. Father, forgive me because so often I I turn to myself and I question. Lord, it's not just that I question why things are happening. I question why you would allow those things to happen. Lord, I take my suffering and I make it about myself, my own comfort. Lord, help me rejoice in my difficult times. Father, I ask that that you would help me always remember the goal of the gospel. And Lord, let me be thankful that in the midst of my pain, I somehow, someway, am able to take part in what is lacking, that is, the spread of the gospel. Lord, let me be reminded that you're using me in my pain and in my suffering. Father, we pray this morning that everything we do would point us to the cross of Christ. Lord, forgive us where we make it about ourselves. Let us rejoice in all circumstances. It's in your name we pray. Amen.